Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. The state of journalism today is a mix of straight reporting, opinionated reporting, and depending on your point of view, news skewed left or right. My guest today has the reputation and career of a straight shooter. He's Steve Herman, who from early 2017 through August of 2021, was senior White House correspondent and subsequently voice of America's White House bureau chief. He's currently on temporary assignment as an editor with the News Standards and Best Practices team of the VOA. And you can follow Steve on Twitter at W7VOA. And Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, Ira, it's great to talk to you again. Yes, we've go back a long ways. And I wanted to just get into, I'm going to make the assumption that not everybody knows about what the functions and purpose of the Voice of America is. So I'm going to ask you just for a, a general summary of what the agency does. Sure. It's not surprising at all that uh, people in the United States would not know about VOA because the Voice of America does not broadcast to the United States. It is uh, what is called an external broadcaster. In fact, it's the largest U.S. international broadcaster. And uh, we have about, I think right now, 47 language services. Our estimated uh, weekly audience is uh, several hundred million people. We produce television programs, uh, radio newscasts. We're on digital platforms. In some countries, you can get us on FM radio. Uh, there's still a little bit of shortwave radio left, believe it or not. And uh, we have about 2,500 affiliate stations around the world. And it's part of something called the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is a U.S. government agency that oversees all of the non-military U.S. international broadcasting, and uh, we're funded by the U.S. Congress. Not to get too much into the weeds, but just for purposes of some of our listeners, how does the Voice of America differ from what used to be called, and I think they've changed their names, but Radio Free Europe, etc., those kinds of broadcast outlets or networks? Right. VOA started in 1942 to uh, counter uh, initially the uh, Nazi Germany propaganda. And then our second language service, I believe, was uh, Japanese. And so it very much had that mission during World War II. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty came along after World War II for the Cold War. RFE was essentially what is called a surrogate broadcaster. So you say you had broadcasters from Hungary, right? They uh, were no longer uh, free to broadcast in Hungary. So they uh, came to the United States or ended up in uh, someplace like Prague and were able to broadcast in their language back to their own countries about what was going on in in those countries. And they very much had a, uh, a strongly anti-communist, pro-democracy message and uh, their initial funding uh, was linked to the CIA, where VOA w had in the early years, links under uh, the United States Information Agency, which was part of the State Department, but it was considered a broadcaster for the entire world to tell you about what was happening in the United States and the world. So quite distinct missions between VOA and RFE. And now there's also RFA, Radio Free Asia. And along with some other broadcasters, we are all under this U.S. Agency for Global Media umbrella. Yeah, it's an interesting history of the agency. And how did you decide to join the VOA? You, I know you from Las Vegas. How did you end up from Las Vegas to the world? 
Right. I was living in Japan for a number of years. I, I lived there um, in the early 1980s for a couple of years. I worked in broadcasting in Japan. Then I came back to Las Vegas, worked in radio and TV news in Las Vegas for a number of years, joined the AP for some years. And then I went back to Japan in 1990, and I was working for a number of broadcasters as a freelance reporter out of Tokyo. I worked for CBS Radio, AP Radio, and VOA. And after a number of years, I really liked the work I was doing for for VOA. It was much more uh, hard news focused on geopolitical issues. And I thought it was a great bunch to work with, and I really believed in this uh, mission. It was very unique, where when I was doing reports for CBS Radio, it would have to be put in a context for Americans to understand some relevancy about what was happening in, in Japan, where v- VOA, I was able to go, instead of doing, say, a 30-second story, I could do a, a minute and a half, which is a great luxury of time and broadcasting. And so... Eventually, they asked me to come on as their uh, contract reporter in Tokyo, which was like a full-time job without being on staff. And then they had openings for a couple of bureaus, and I applied for for those, and uh, I was hired as the bureau chief in uh, New Delhi, India, for as the South Asia bureau chief. That was back in uh, 2007, so... Spent three and a half years in South Asia. Then I went to be Northeast Asia Bureau Chief based in Seoul, uh, Korea, covering the Korean Peninsula in Japan. Then I did three years as the Southeast Asia Bureau Chief based in Bangkok. I, I say I'm ABC, Asia but China. You can ask me about Asia, but I know enough about China to tell you I'm not an expert about China. I was never based there. So now you're traveling the world, or at least Asia but China. And you eventually end up at the White House. So where was where did that leap happen? Yeah. So what happened was I returned after about a quarter century in Asia. I, I felt, you know, I missed an entire generation in the United States. Maybe I better come back and get back in touch with my native country. So after my stint in Southeast Asia, I was um, offered uh, the position of uh, VOA senior diplomatic correspondent based at the State Department. And I spent a bunch of time during uh, 2016, right, traveling with uh, Secretary of State John Kerry. And then after the election, when it was obvious there was going to be a, a change in the lineup for political parties at the White House, and we were going into a something that could be potentially pretty unprecedented. My bosses decided to um, to send me over to the White House to uh, cover the uh, Donald Trump administration. And you were there for a while. And it's an interesting position, the White House, because I always thought that the problem when you have a White House correspondence gathering within the press room there at the White House, which is very small, people don't realize how small it is, but there tends to be And maybe it's just human nature. Maybe that's what it is. A herd mentality, as I would call it. So everybody has a certain narrative in their minds. And if one of the reporters or two of the reporters think differently about what was just presented to them by the White House press spokesperson, there seems to be this little tension. That may just be my thinking of it. What's your take on it, having worked in in that room? 
Well, I, I think again, the, the the what you would see on TV, those press briefings, are a very small part of the job of being a White House correspondent. And obviously, when the cameras were on, and these were being broadcast as like a daily soap opera on the cable TV networks, there was grandstanding going on between some of the reporters, television reporters especially, and the press secretaries, which was a very different mood than in the previous administrations when the briefings would go on for an hour and a half. Nobody was really paying attention to them. They got quite wonky and you could get granular and dig down into issues and you didn't have that that strong pairing back and forth. That changed during the Trump administration. That's not to say that there is not typically somewhat of an adversarial relationship in any administration between the White House press and the, uh, the the spokespeople, especially the press secretary. And if the, the reporters believe that the press secretary is uh, trying to obfuscate or lie to them, cover up something, then they're going to go for blood. And that is true in any administration. Again, because of the unprecedented nature of the Trump administration and its style of messaging and the direct a pairing that we saw every single day between the president himself and those of us in the White House press corps, it it was a, a very different mood compared to previous administrations. Away from the press room itself and into the cubicles where you guys work out of, though, isn't it again the, the, the fact that you're every small space and everybody tends to have what I would again refer to as the herd mentality? In other words, they, they take a narrative about something and that's kind of the way it is. Do you feel comfortable if you say to the rest of your colleagues, hey, look, I see it this way instead of that way? Or is there an adversarial situation if you don't agree with the general narrative? Well, I think both what, first of all, the White House press corps is not monolithic whatsoever politically. You you can have very conservative news outlets there, uh, liberal news activists, uh, some very specialty publications, for example, from religious publications, and for VOA, we were more interested in what our audiences overseas would be interested in. So rather than you'll see a lot of the questions, we'll deal with the, the sausage making, right? The, the process of, you know, did the president talk to Senator Manchin today about the infrastructure bill? What's, what's changing? Uh, you know, what's your predictions of when this is going to get approval? Do you have enough senators on board for that? We were more interested in geopolitical. So when we were asking questions, uh, and, and, and this day my successors asked questions of the president or the press secretary, they're more likely to be maybe about, you know, how is our uh, donations of coronavirus vaccines going uh, for the African continent? You know, what is the president going to say to, uh, to Macron in, in France about the d- debacle over the, uh, the, the submarine contract? That, that sort of thing, more, more international news. So I think there's pretty much a diversity. But yes, sometimes you will see other reporters following up on the questions of a previous reporter to try to get the, the press secretary to, to say something differently or, or perhaps uh, ca- catch them out. And then also when we are in uh the oval office that's a pool of reporters not everyone can go into the oval office so i was frequently in there uh, as the representative of all of the radio networks for example 
And so I have to file, I have to get broadcast quality audio of whatever the president is saying, distribute that to all of the radio networks. And I could ask any question I wanted and see if the president would answer. So I might change my questions a little bit because it's like, okay, what, what is of interest today to ABC radio, BBC radio, CBS radio might be a different question that I would ask if, if it was a unilateral type of situation. So it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite a diverse uh, a scene among the White House press corps. It's not a, a, a total monolithic us against them type of uh, scenario. Uh, but you know, obviously, a lot of this gets uh, dramatized because when you're watching the evening news or watching cable news, you'll just see a little clip. And, and with cable networks, it may depend on whatever type of agenda that they're trying to uh, promote for that particular day with, uh, with, with the domestic news. One last question on that topic. It's a diverse group, but also to occasionally you'll get a local reporter from either a local television station, radio station, or newspaper. What's the attitude of the White House Press Corps, the permanent class of that, to those kinds of people that come in and ask a way different kind of a question, but it's actually important to that particular locale? Right. So what we saw during the Trump administration, they pioneered what was called the Skype seat where uh, somebody would pop up on a monitor behind the press secretary from a local TV station or newspaper. They could be in Alaska or Wyoming somewhere. And uh, generally, they would want to ask a question about something happening in their state. And those usually would come at the end of the press briefing. I thought it was not, nothing wrong with that. Uh, it, it promoted more diversity in the... Um, in the White House briefing room, even though if the person was appearing virtually, uh, the questions tended to be what would be regarded as real softball type of questions. But uh, what people may not know is the seats in that briefing room are allocated not by the White House, but by the White House Correspondents Association. And so traditionally, your front row in the middle would be in the old days, it was UPI and AP. UPI is not a major league wire service anymore. So it's AP and Reuters front row and center. And then the big uh, uh, major TV networks. And so there's a bit of a pecking order. We were in the fourth row. So I guess it's better than being in the back <laughs> row, right? And if, if some news organization starts not having somebody sitting in that seat every day, then it's going to be taken away when the Correspondent Association, uh, I think it's every year or two that they look at all the seats and, and reallocate them. And some are shared seats. Now, that doesn't mean two people are sitting in the seat at the same time. They have to take turns. So you might have New York Daily News one day and then maybe uh, um, Radio France International the next day in the, in the same seat. And then there are, for the foreign press, there are other types of rotations. So there is quite a bit of diversity in the room. But one thing that I say, Ira, if you as a freelance reporter, whatever, want to go to Washington, D.C. and start covering press briefings, standing in that room on a, on a, on a daily basis, it's pretty darn easy to get credentials. I, I say it's probably easier to get a, a credential, a press credential from the White House than it is from the Clark County Fire Department <laughs> in, uh, in Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, so and and that has led to a uh, 
an interesting cast of eccentric characters over the years of people on the fringe or, uh, you know, who knows who they they really work for, what they represent, being in the press room on a regular basis and getting called on. There was there's an Indian gentleman who is still there. He's been there for many, many administrations, known as Goyle the Foil is his nickname, because press secretaries would always go to him uh, to sort of break up a, an intense briefing because he was known to ask questions, say, about imports of Indian mango. <laughs> uh, so there you have it. Yeah, I get that. It's a tribute to you, the, the fact that you are in that pool in the Oval Office because, again, your Voice of America, which is broadcasting to the world, and yet the commercial TV and radio stations are relying on your audio and your questions for their audiences. So you have to almost turn on a dime and accommodate them. But the fact that they have you do that as opposed to somebody else, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good tribute to you. Certainly, VOA has been a, a respected member of the White House press corps for many decades. And we also have full-time correspondents at the State Department, the Pentagon, on, on Capitol Hill. So we are as um, uh, legitimate, and I would argue first rate, as, as any news organization out there. In fact, I like to say we are the only news organization in the world that's mandated by law to be objective. There was a charter. The VOA charter was signed into law by President Ford in 1976. It protects our editorial independence and uh, the integrity of our programming, but also says that we will serve as a consistently reliable and authoritative source of news, that we will be accurate, objective, and comprehensive, and that we will represent America, but not any single segment of American society. So therefore, we have to present a balanced and, and comprehensive projection of significant American thought. So that's really a remarkable document, especially one applied to any government organization anywhere in the world. But is it a challenge, I guess, because the agency has this mandate to ask questions that have to do with distributing news to the world, but at the same time, you're accommodating your commercial network colleagues in terms of asking certain questions when you're in the Oval Office because you're a pool reporter. So does that work out okay? In other words, the agency's okay with you doing it that way? Oh, absolutely. We Our bosses understand what pool duty is, but just because we ask a question in the Oval Office doesn't mean we're going to necessarily make a story for VOA News that day about about that question. Got it. And if I'm asking questions in the Oval Office, usually there's a half a dozen other reporters asking questions. So it was very frequent that I would ask a question about something, but the story that I would write that day would be about an answer that the president gave to another reporter's question. You know, sometimes I got good <laughs> answers out of the president. Sometimes I did not. Sometimes he was uh, sarcastic with me. Sometimes he was... Uh, <laughs> Very friendly. Uh, one time, President Trump, I, I forget what, what the, I even forget what the question was, but he was being sarcastic. Obviously, he said, that's the best question you've ever asked. <laughs> uh, you never knew. You know. and, and, and I would also argue that uh, uh, the, uh, the current office holder, uh, Joe Biden, as president, uh, can, can also be a little 
uh, unpredictable in his uh, responses to the news media as well. He is uh, sometimes a bit uh, prickly and, uh, and uh, you know, they're all human beings. That's one way I, I, I try to explain it to people about what presidents are like. A couple of personal questions. How do you maintain your American accent given the fact that you lived all those years in, in Asia? Well, uh, talk to Henry Kissinger about that. Right? <laughs> uh, many, many decades since he lived in the United States still has his uh, German accent yes, that's from his true. boyhood. So uh, I, I, I think there was a period uh, where I was overseas and I would listen to a lot of BBC radio. And so I had to be careful to make sure that I didn't say schedule instead of schedule sometimes, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't think I was ever in danger of uh, losing my uh, U.S. Midwestern accent. And also, how do you keep up the energy? Because you have traveled the world and you are working insane hours and I get up and I'm tired from the get-go. So how do you manage to, I know you love reporting news. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. Your passion is reporting news, but how do you keep up that energy, especially going through time zone changes, last minute changes in schedule for people you're covering, et cetera? Yeah. Excellent question, Ira. And I have to tell you that on some of the trips we took on Air Force One, where we would start early in the morning uh, out at Andrews Air Force Base, which meant I was probably up two hours before that, fly to Asia, and I couldn't sleep on the plane, really, because especially with President Trump, you never knew when he could come back to the press cabin. So I couldn't take any pills to knock myself out, which I really needed to do for what was going to be a very long day ahead. When we got to Asia, the president, of course, has a bed on the plane, and he could sleep. And so we'd land in Asia. It would be morning. He was all refreshed. And uh, we would have an 18-hour day ahead of us. And and, uh, oh, there's all sorts of nightmares I could tell you about after the end of the day. Then you have to file your stories. You have to go find your luggage. And and when I got to Riyadh one time, it went to the other press hotel. So I was up to 4 o'clock in the morning looking for my luggage. And then the baggage check for us to fly the next day, you know, might have been two hours later. So there were some days which, for me, literally lasted 36 hours. And... Yes, you're going on adrenaline for a long time, but I am I am a very much a protector about my sleep. I'm one of those people who believe uh, that a good night's sleep, even if it's six hours, is really really important for your 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 physical and mental health. And uh, trying to eat properly, there were sometimes maybe I would only get one meal a day, and sometimes that was at eleven o'clock at night. So the, the it. People think that doing this job as a White House correspondent and traveling on Air Force One is really glamorous. And I guess there is an element of glamour in the sense that you have exclusive access to something that very, very few people get to experience. I mean, I probably did more than 70 flights on Air Force One. I lost track. It, it is it is something amazing. I felt extremely privileged to be able to do it, but it was really hard work. And so last August, I told my bosses that I didn't want it to be seen as political, regardless of the election outcome last November. I didn't want to do another four years of it. Maybe a year would be okay. Uh, and that's how it ended up. I, I went off the beat at the, uh, the end of August after covering the first eight months of the Biden administration. I'm going to follow up 
myself. In other words, I'm going to follow up my own question because I was listening very carefully sure. and you didn't quite answer my question, though I appreciated your answer and it gave some insight into how you look at things, but you didn't answer my question, which was, how do you maintain that energy? How do you keep going? Other than, you did say adrenaline, but other than adrenaline, do you take protein bars? Do you drink a protein drink? Or how do you just do it where you're on the go all the time? Yeah, I was very careful about limiting my caffeine intake. I'm a tea drinker uh, rather than a coffee drinker. And as you may know, if you drink too much caffeine, you're you're going to have, uh, you know, a number of uh, uh, side effects. And and one is uh, having to find a urinal uh, in in strange places. So you, and and when you could not literally take a break sometimes for eight ten hours, you you know you had to be careful about that. I I I remember a couple of times I I have never had Red Bull in my life by the way, but a couple of times I actually had a bottle just sitting there just in case I felt that I was. Uh, you know, going to, you know, put my head into the keyboard at some point. <laughs> so is it just stamina then that keeps you going? It, it is, you know, I I was never in the Marines, right? But I, I would take, I would think about what does a Marine go through to do his job to, even if it's standing outside at attention for six hours at a time in the cold and the pouring rain. And it's, it's a mental attitude. And you have to talk to yourself and quiet the voice in your head that says, I'm exhausted. I just can't do this anymore. And, um, and, and really focus on what you needed to do and not allow all these voices in your head to say, oh my God, we've got another, how many hours do we still have ahead of us? And I've still got these 20 things to do. Focus on one thing at a time, prioritize and know that at some point, you're going to be able to put your head on the pillow. Now, that's an answer. Last question. What was the most important story you've reported on in your career so far? Wow. Um, you know, th that I, I guess it depends on what you define as important. Uh, was it important because it got the biggest headlines at that particular time or over a period of decades? Was it something that has proven to be extremely significant for uh, whatever reason? Or personal to you, Steve? Well, I would say if you could lump the Trump presidency as a story, right? People are writing books and there'll be hundreds of more books written about it in the years ahead. So I would say definitely the consequential, uh, the, the covering the Trump administration but the things that are most memorable to me very early in my career, I was inside the MGM Grand Hotel with the firemen uh, on, the, on, on that uh, terrible day. So that was something early in my career in Las Vegas. I covered nuclear testing at the Nevada test site and consequences at the radio, uh, radioactive fallout. I was one of the early reporters, along with George Knapp, to report about Area 51 so I think things earlier in my career made more impression on me and things later in my career covering civil wars, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, the Fukushima nuclear meltdown and tsunami and earthquake and, and all of that, which was, was something pretty horrible. You know, th those are, are very consequential stories too. But as you get older, I think you get more used to covering and maybe in some sense a little bit jaded 
about some of these things where the things that happen early in your career, maybe even being on the, the, the scene of a, a homicide or a plane crash in Las Vegas are the things that have stamped more indelibly in my mind as, as a journalist than, than things I did later in my career. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Steve Herman, who from early 2017 through August of 2021 was senior White House correspondent and subsequently Voice of America's White House Bureau Chief. He is currently on temporary assignment as an editor with the News Standards and Best Practices team of the VOA, and you can follow Steve on Twitter at W7VOA. Steve, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Ira. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.